Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Wow, so much going on today. And over the weekend, I published a couple of pieces over at uh, TomHartman.Medium.com. One in particular about the Buy American, this whole Buy American process. But interestingly, published that piece over the weekend, and today the Biden administration announces that they're going to do what I suggested in the article, which no president has done since Ronald Reagan. And, you know, I can't claim that there's any relationship between the two, but, you know, it's a fascinating story. But I want to start at the beginning, and that is this piece in the Washington Post a couple of days ago. But it's just now starting to get some attention. I noticed that uh, CNN was reporting on it this morning that the Justice Department is saying, you know, we're not sure that we really want to prosecute all the people who broke into the Capitol. And I'm like, what? So I published a piece today and I tweeted this out. You can find it on Twitter. You can find it on our Facebook page. Uh, You can find it over at medium.com and presumably on our blog or it'll shortly be there that Americans are just, I think, starting to realize, I think it's really starting to sink in for a lot of Americans exactly what happened on January 6th, that this was an actual attempt to overthrow, violently overthrow the government of the United States to assassinate Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. They built a gallows outside We had a carpenter call into the program a week or so ago and say, you know, I build houses for a living. I've built something like 500 houses. And I can tell you that thing was well made by professionals. And I found a close-up photo of it because it sparked my curiosity of that gallows outside the Capitol building. And sure enough, I mean, you know, countersunk bolts that are those giant, you know, like half-inch diameter, six-inch long bolts. And it wasn't made with two-by-fours. It was made with four-by-fours. And I mean... This is serious. This was an actual, real, this was not symbolic. This was a gallows complete with steps. They built steps up to it. It was a gallows designed to kill people, to hang people. I mean, they were marching through the halls chanting, hang Mike Pence and where's Nancy? They smeared feces, their own poop 
on the floors and walls. They damaged and vandalized at least a half a dozen priceless paintings. They trashed government offices. They stole top secret stuff. And this was entirely the effort of one political party. And that's the important point here. That, that's the thing that I think that, you know, we just absolutely need to pay attention to. You know, I get it that, as far as I can tell, two Fox News hosts who, whenever they talk about the coup attempt on January 6th, talk about Democrat infiltrators. There were none. <laughs> there was absolutely no documentation for that. These people were wearing MAGA hats. They were carrying Trump flags. They were Republicans. And now they're saying that they want mercy and compassion and understanding. The guy who was dressed like a naked Viking with the giant fur over his shulders and the horns and everything, you know, he's saying, well, you know, I was just doing what Donald Trump told me to do. In fact, apparently a number of them, that's going to be their defense as they go into court is we were just doing what, what the president of the United States told us to do. I mean, there's film of these guys as they're confronting the Capitol Police at the beginning of the siege saying, Donald Trump sent us here. Your boss sent us here. You have to let us in. He told us to come here. This is going to be their defense. See, they want us to understand that it's not their fault. We're just supposed to start understanding these folks, these Republicans. This is the same Republican Party who for 50 years has waged a brutal war on drugs that H.R. Haldeman, Richard Nixon's chief domestic policy advisor came right out and said, we did this to make it criminal so that we could easily arrest black people and anti-war hippies. And they've done that. And thousands of black people and a few anti-war hippies have rotted in prison for years as a result of Nixon's war on drugs, the Republican Party's war on drugs. This is the Republican Party who waged a no-mercy campaign of imprisoning refugees, fleeing violence in their home countries, tearing their children away from them, putting their children in cages for months, losing over 600 of them, saying, no mercy. They now want mercy. This is the same Republican Party that says no exceptions to the death penalty. In the last three months, they have executed more people than in the last 56 years at the federal level, combined. This is the same no compassion Republican Party that's now asking for compassion that for years and years and years has said, you know, well, you know, if somebody falls on hard times, and we have no obligation to provide them with government-funded housing or food stamps or extended unemployment benefits. In fact, every Republican administration back to Reagan has cut back on unemployment benefits, and then a Democrat comes in and re-expands them. This is the Republican Party that has worked for 80-plus years to end Social Security, to privatize it and turn it over to the banks, and to gut Medicare and Medicaid. These are the people who spent 40 years so glorifying guns that America is the worldwide center for school shootings. And when first graders were gunned down at Sandy Hook, this is, you know, these people who want a discussion now about whether or not they should just be let go. 
These are the same people who refuse to even discuss taking weapons of war off our streets. This is the same Republican Party that is now talking about, well, let's, you know, have the rule of law and let's be careful and let's have justice. This is the same Republican Party that cheered when Dick Cheney and George W. Bush captured people in Iraq and Afghanistan who didn't commit any crimes other than that their neighbors wanted to make $5,000, which is more than, you know, three years salary by turning them in and then sent them off to black sites to be tortured and executed. Then they ended up in Guantanamo. And now the Washington Post says that, you know, maybe the Justice Department can't handle all these prosecutions. You know, we really need to understand. Maybe it wasn't their fault. Really? You know, I'll finish my rant after the break, but stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm not inclined to show mercy at the moment, (laughs) suffice it to say. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag your it. Mike in Lameda, California. Hey, Mike, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Hi. You know, I remembered my first regular job application where I had to sign that a little provision that I had never at any time since 1934 or someone back there uh, had been a member of a group which advocated the violent overthrow of the United States government. Well, mm-hmm. it occurs to me that now Donald Trump fits very squarely in that category, along with his mouthpiece, Giuliani, because... And 147 uh, Republicans in the House and 12 of them in the Senate. Arguably, uh, some of them... I won't go into how culpable any of them is individually, but certainly Trump and Giuliani. And so I've written both my senators and advocated uh, a criminal referral, quite apart from the uh, trial of impeachment, advocating a trial under 18 U.S. Code 2385 for those two, because it's quite uh, clear that they have tried to overthrow the Constitution and the government of the United States by force and violence. Remember that Mr. Trump, even when he was running for office in the first place, was raising assassination as a possible remedy if he lost an election. And it doesn't seem to have changed. Second Amendment remedies. Second Amendment remedies, quite so. So I just wanted to suggest that anyone who wants to join in my little bandwagon and write to their senators and advocate that sort of referral. Also, I, I wanted to point out that The crimes of individual one are not just against all the majority of people who voted to remove him from office. They're also for all the people who voted for him and didn't really consider that they were voting to overturn the U.S. Constitution and have power transferred by violent mobs rather than by the vote of the people. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what's going on here, and that's essentially what they're advocating. And... It's mind-boggling that anybody would even apologize for this. This just blows my mind, you know, that we took it seriously. 
when they plotted a coup to reverse basically the Civil War by assassinating Lincoln so that Andrew Johnson, a slaveholder himself, uh, you know, a Southern, former Southern Senator, would become the President of the United States and would put an end to Reconstruction. And I just find the whole thing mind-boggling that these guys are going along with it. I did notice uh, just a minute ago there was a caller on the board who said that they disagreed with me and wanted to say that it was Antifa who was charging the Capitol. And, you know, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious, you know, I, I, I would love to hear the evidence. If somebody has, you know, some evidence of that, you know, give me a shout. We'll talk about it. But Antifa is the anti-fascist movement. Right. And it seems to me that overthrowing the government of the United States, the democratically elected Republican government of the United States, overthrowing that is a fascist goal. I, I just don't get it. Anyhow, Mike, thanks for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the Tom Hartman Reader, which is excerpts from other books that I've written. This excerpt is from Threshold. We're on page 239. Starts out with, I went to Corral, Peru. It's the first mother city, the first original city that has ever been discovered intact. It's 5,000 years old. It has been buried for 4,000 years. It was just excavated in the last decade. I went down to Peru. We did our radio show from there. And I met with Dr. Ruth Shady, who is the anthropologist and archaeologist who's running this. And she said, well, as we sat and ate, I asked her what was the most significant fact about Corral. Here, she said, the civilization was different, contrasting the Corral of 5,000 years ago with the city-states that were emerging in Egypt, India, and Asia at that time. The focus of the culture here was different. When this civilization was formed here, peace was very important. There was no war. She paused and looked at me with a glint in her eye. Why? Why was there no war? She asked as if quizzing me. It turns out they found this city that had been there for a thousand years, and there wasn't a single instrument of war or violence anywhere in the city. Music, dancing, 
flutes, amphitheaters, no war. So then we jump to page 244. Are we innately evil or good, warlike or peaceful? In 1634, in his book Leviathan, Thomas Hobbes stated our culture's assumption of the essentially evil nature of humans, saying that life without the iron fist of church or state would be war of every man against every man, resulting in a society where life is poor, nasty, brutish, and short. A generation later, John Jacques Rousseau and John Locke challenged Hobbes, suggesting that evidence from tribes being discovered across Africa and the Americas by European explorers demonstrated that instead, the natural state of humankind was good, egalitarian, and peaceful. The thinking of Rousseau and Locke explicitly and overtly influenced the founders of the United States, particularly Thomas Jefferson, who saw a verification in it in his own contact with Native Americans. Thus began America as an egalitarian experiment, an experiment that has been expanded and developed by nearly a hundred other nations in the world that claim democracy particularly the countries of Northern Europe, where once feared and warlike people, most notably the Vikings of Norway and Sweden, are now among the happiest and most peaceful and self-sufficient people in the world. Yet the Hobbeses of the world are currently ascendant in terms of both war on humans and war on the environment. But what should be done? As I said in Leonardo DiCaprio's environmental documentary, The Eleventh Hour, the problem is not a problem of technology. The problem is not a problem of too much carbon dioxide. The problem is not a problem of global warming. The problem is not a problem of waste. All of those things are symptoms of the problem. The problem is the way that we are thinking. The problem is fundamentally a cultural problem. It's at the level of our culture that this illness is happening. In my books, I've shared stories from all around the world of cultures that have matured, awakened, and found ways to live in peace, harmony, and ecological balance, and the fate of others that have not. Some are pre-city, aboriginal, and tribal people. Some are modern communities. Some are fully developed city-states moving quickly in the direction of peace. All offer us a new vision of how life can be in a world where the core assumptions of modern culture are challenged and modified. This is not a radical or new age or easily dismissed concept. It started with the Enlightenment of the 17th century. Its first experiment was the founding of the United States in the 18th century flawed, but a great experiment. It flowered throughout the world throughout the 19th century as nation after nation flipped from warrior king states to democracies. It found global acceptance in the 20th century with the foundation of the United Nations, the first international organization whose single explicit purpose was to create, promote, and maintain worldwide peace. And now in the 21st century as war against both humans and against nature, is increasingly being viewed with horror by people around the world, movements are springing up all over the planet to reject the immature cultural paradigms of the past and move us into a post-carbon, post-warfare, egalitarian, and peaceful world where there's room for both humans and for all other life. Then we start a chapter, Why and When Did War Begin? If it's true, as scientists from Peter Farb to Rianne Eisler to Ruth Shady point out, that a prime differentiator between war societies and peaceful societies is the role of power relationships between men and women, the question is raised, why and when does war begin and how is it related to the relationship between the sexes? Most preliterate cultures, from those in the Arctic to those in the southernmost tips of South America and Africa, were largely peaceful before contact with technology and our culture. While there was conflict, and often violent conflict, it rarely reached the proportions of organized, sustained, legally sanctioned mass murder that we today refer to as war. 
As the anthropologist Peter Farb has documented, some Native American societies, for example, the Shoshone, didn't even have a word for war in their vocabulary. Others used organized games to resolve conflicts. Many theories have been put forward for how and why the warrior mentality took over. And then it goes on to whether this started with animal husbandry or whether it started with agriculture. Where did war begin? And, and some interesting stuff. So it's in the Tom Hartman Reader. So as I was saying, this, this is insane. Here's a couple of actual quotes from the Washington Post. They're saying that some of these people are, quote, lesser offenders, and quote, most of those arrested so far have no criminal records. You know, there's a first time for everything, right? Not to mention the Post article adds, there's also a question over whether charging all the rioters could swamp the federal court system then maybe we need to bring in some temporary judges from elsewhere. I mean, in 1865, when we had an actual coup against the United States government and Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and a slaveholder, Andrew Johnson, was put in as president to blow up basically the results of the Civil War, and he, and he set us down that course. They hanged four of the participants. Now, I'm not advocating the death penalty for anybody here, but, you know, they took it seriously. Samuel Arnold, Dr. Samuel Mudd, and Michael O'Flaughlin uh, received life sentences of hard labor. Edmund Spangler got a six-year sentence. John Wilkes Booth was chased into a burning barn where he was shot. Remember when Roy Cohn was leading the charge, Donald Trump's lawyer was leading the charge to put Ethel and Julius Rosenberg in the electric chair? And he succeeded, even though there was virtually no evidence against Ethel. She apparently had no idea what her husband was up to. George Washington put down an insurrection on horseback as president. Abraham Lincoln fought a bloody war against insurrections. We deal with traitors in this country. And frankly, I end my article today. Like I said, you can find links to it over on, uh, on our Facebook page and on Twitter. I end my article today by uh, pointing out that, just ask Rudy Giuliani what he thinks about this. I mean, not specifically about storming the Capitol, because we all know what he thinks about that. But, you know, for years and years and years, what he said was, he called it his broken windows policy and stop and frisk. That if you don't stop small crimes, you're going to get large crimes. If you don't hold criminals to account the first time that they're arrested, they're going to be back a second, third, and fourth time. Rudy Giuliani. Meanwhile, we're finding 31, at least 31 law enforcement officers in 12 states are being investigated for this uh, sedition, for treason. Nine of the law enforcement officers are from one Pennsylvania police department, three from Los Angeles police department, one is an LA County Sheriff's deputy, Oklahoma Sheriff, a New Hampshire police chief. I mean, it goes on and on. There's a good piece about that over at Daily Kos. Meanwhile, the state Republican Party, oh, and, and Pete Sessions, the Republican from Texas, had tweeted back uh, three days before the, the insurrection, before the coup, the coup attempt, the failed coup. Let's call it a fail. I mean, it was an attempt, but it was an actual coup that failed. Three days before that, 
Pete Sessions tweeted, had a great meeting today with folks from Stop the Steal at our nation's capital. Oh, another one giving them tours. I encouraged them to keep fighting, and I assured them that I look forward to doing my duty on January 6th. And then he put the hashtag Stop the Steal. Right. Well, yesterday he deleted that tweet. Ah, gee, I wonder why. Could it be used as evidence against him in a court of law? Meanwhile, I pointed out over the weekend in a piece uh, over at Medium that uh, if America doesn't implement the Buy American vision now, the 21st century will be the Chinese century. Basically pointing out that in the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt passed a law. The federal government represents almost a fifth, a little more than a sixth of all purchasing in the United States. It's a massive amount of money. And Franklin Roosevelt passed this law that when the federal government wants to buy something, they must buy it from an American manufacturer. Now, there was a waiver provision in the law in case of an emergency. If the government desperately needs something right now and you can only buy it from Germany, okay, go ahead and buy it from Germany. But that's what the law said. Well, when Reagan came into office, he started handing out these waivers like candy particularly at the request of IBM, ironically enough, that was moving their manufacturing operations overseas. Bill Clinton continued the practice. George W. Bush continued the practice. Barack Obama continued the practice. Donald Trump continued offering waivers to all these federal agencies so that they didn't have to buy American-made goods. And I published this over the weekend and this morning, the Biden administration announced that today, Joe Biden is signing an executive order, no more waivers unless it's a genuine emergency. This could bring back literally millions of good paying manufacturing jobs and bring the wealth of America back from China and Vietnam and Malaysia, et cetera, back to the United States. I mean, that was the essence of, uh, you know, Wealth of Nations of Adam Smith's book. So I'm really happy to see that. That, that, is, that is a big deal. But meanwhile, what do we do with these traitors? I mean, should, is the Washington Post right? Or is the Department of Justice right? That, you know, maybe we just shouldn't prosecute them. There's just too many. Or is something really bad going on here? I mean, the, the Arizona Republican Party has now censured Cindy McCain, their own governor, Doug Ducey, and Jeff Flake. You're listening to sake. the Tom Hartman program. Are we looking at an entire American political party that has been taken over by a crazed fascist movement? It sure looks like it to me. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast.
Okay, one last thing I wanted to mention, and then I'll get to your phone calls here. Howard Dean tweeted over the weekend that Louis DeJoy can and should be fired. And now, sooner rather than later. DeJoy is a civil servant, and I don't know the status of the Postal Board of Governors, but I'm of the opinion, and Dean is, Howard Dean is not the only person saying this, he's one of the more high-profile people being quoted as saying this, but that even if you have civil service protections, if somebody can demonstrate that you are doing your job incompetently or destructively, you can be fired for cause. And in my opinion, Joe Biden should fire Louis DeJoy for cause today, and he should strip out, I believe there's eight members of the Postal Board of Governors. All of them were appointed by Donald Trump, and I believe these are 10-year positions. They need to go too. We need our post office back, and Congress needs to act to hand back to the post office once it's no longer in the hands of Louis DeJoy and his eight Republican guys who all want to privatize the post office and give it to FedEx or UPS, probably FedEx because it's a non-union operation. We not only need to take it away from them, but then give back that roughly $50 billion that's sitting in in the trust fund of the post office to pay for the health insurance of people who retire 75 years from 2005, which is what, uh, 60 years from now now. It's nuts. They're sitting on $50 billion to pay for health insurance 60 years from now when there won't even be health insurance. By then we'll certainly have a single payer system because it's the most efficient, the least expensive, and the most effective. And if anything has proven that, it's this pandemic. Look at every other country in the world has their act together when it comes to vaccinating people, when it comes to keeping track of who's sick and who's not, when it comes to just the whole thing. And why are we not? Well, we have no national health care system. We have, it seems, no national nothing. Oh, and I told you that uh, today the articles of, or the article of impeachment for insurrection, promoting insurrection, is uh, going to be transmitted to the United States Senate, and that therefore the Senate trial would start today. Well, the ceremony around the Senate trial begins today. The article will be exhibited today. Tomorrow, the Senate will issue a summons to Donald Trump to appear before the court. He has until February 2nd to respond to the impeachment's pretrial briefs, in other words, to lay out his defense. And on February 8th, the House can rebut his rebuttal. And then on February 9th, the actual trial will begin. There's a lot of uh, work that needs to be done between now and then, but you know, so, so that's, that's the uh, schedule, that's the plan. Rick in Cartersville, Georgia. Hey, Rick, what's up? Hey, Tom. I wanted to get your opinion on something other that I think could be something that could be pursued. In the first impeachment proceedings, of course, naturally he was acquitted, and the fact that certainly I think you could say that particularly the proceedings in the Senate was pretty much a sham. It was you know, set up the fact that they weren't going to call any witnesses, they weren't going to do anything, almost a conspiracy from that standpoint. But also when you couple that with the DOJ memo that apparently Mueller had to be working under and the fact that 
removal from office through impeachment would be the only way that he could be prosecuted at that point in time. It would seem like the two couple together could provide a case to say that all of the Republicans that were complicit in all that were actually aiding and abetting and could be charged in that case and also possibly violating the oath of the office. What do you think? I think by and large you're right, Rick. I also think, though, that the ultimate white privilege, you know, one dimension of white privilege, of course, or privilege in general, is wealth privilege and power privilege. And holding anybody in the United States Senate or House of Representatives seriously accountable for what has happened, while I'm all in favor of it, I think is extremely unlikely. I, I, I think it's in, in, incredibly unseemly that we're going to see co-conspirators of Donald Trump, specifically uh, Cruz and Hawley, uh, sitting in judgment of Donald Trump. Um, you know, it's like, uh, hey, me and five guys right. robbed a bank. Uh, I want the I want the five guys on my jury, please. Uh, it's just not how it's supposed right. to work. Right. But I think you're right. And that memo that the Justice Department came that the Nixon Justice Department came up with in order to prevent Richard Nixon from being charged with crimes. This is when not only was the Watergate stuff happening, but it had come out, or it was starting to come out, that Jimmy Hoffa had bribed him to the tune of a million dollars, and that the milk lobby had bribed him. They literally walked into the White House with a half million dollars in cash in a suitcase, in a briefcase, and left it for him. Um, as that stuff was coming out, that's when Nixon had his, his Justice Department write a memo saying that you can't even investigate, much less prosecute, a sitting president because he's so busy you know it's so important and then when bill clinton was president and the republicans were doing their witch hunt about him having an affair with monica lewinsky who was a consenting adult bill clinton right. had his justice department revisit that memo and say yeah we kind of agree you can't prosecute a guy uh you know while he's president it was so self-serving in both cases, frankly, although it was far more egregious with Nixon. Um, you know, I'm, I'm frankly not, you know, I don't care if my president has an affair. I'm guessing that probably 90% of all of our presidents have had affairs. Uh, we certainly know that at least right. half of them have, you know, while in office. Um, but, uh, you know, things like incitement to insurrection or, you know, self-enrichment, uh, violations of the Emolument Clause, um, conspiring with a foreign government to become president. In this case, in Trump's case, it was Russia in 2016. He attempted to do it with Ukraine in 2020. When that got shot down, God only knows who, you know, who else is, is in on this thing. And then when that didn't work, it was, uh, hey, let's, let's destroy the country. Let's, let's have another civil war. I think there, there has to be, a, there absolutely has to be accountability. Rick, thank you for the call. Marcus in Chicago. Hey, Marcus, what's Hey, when black athletes were um, kneeling to protest racial injustice here in this country, they were called traitors, they were called disrespecting the police, they were called disrespecting the military, these same, some of those same people, I'm sure, were in that melee, that riot at the Capitol. You mean the people who were all flipped out about Colin Kaepernick? Flag. Yes. They were beating people, police, with that same flag. They killed yeah. police with that same flag. Some of those same people who berated those athletes were kneeling because they wanted racial justice, equality, 
I don't hear that outrage now. I don't yeah. hear anyone, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, you won't. I mean, this is a white supremacist movement, Marcus. I mean, that's the bottom line. It is, and you know, occasionally somebody will call it out on TV. Joanne Reed has done a particularly good job of that over on MSNBC. But this is a white supremacist movement, period, full stop. That That is the core foundation of it and has been since the founding of our republic. We fought a civil war over this. Marcus, thank you for the call. We'll be back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016, one of my favorites. This is from page 62, by the way. A middle class primer, primer is the chapter title. In her writings, which have become foundational for libertarian theology, author Ayn Rand suggested that the only purpose of government should be to prevent oppression by force. What she neglected to consider was all the force inherent in nature. If you're hungry, there is the force of biology. If you're homeless, you confront the force of wind, storms, ice, and rain. If you're sick, you confront the ravages and force of disease. These were the forces that provoked the first governments, the first communities, the first clans and tribes, the first nation states. It's easy for libertarian elitists, such as multimillionaire TV talking heads or college kids reading Atlas Shrugged, to talk about how there should be no government beyond police, the army, and the courts. They all have enough resources that they don't need to deal with the forces of raw nature. And that explains why billionaires would bankroll libertarian-leaning think tanks that will, when the crash comes with its full force, tell us it was caused by big government. However, in the real world, humans must confront both nature and other humans, which is why we create governments and why we create economies. But it wasn't until 1776, when Thomas Jefferson placed John Locke's right to life, liberty, and property, or replaced it, with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that the idea of a large class of working people have the ability to pursue happiness, the middle class. It wasn't until 1776 that that was even seriously considered as a cornerstone obligation to government. This was also the first time in history that the word happiness had ever appeared in any nation's formative documents, as Jefferson wrote in 1817 to Dr. John Manners. Quote, the evidence of this natural right, like that to our right of life, liberty, the use of our faculties, the pursuit of happiness is not left to the feeble and sophisticated investigations of reason, but is impressed on the sense of every man. As Jefferson realized, with no government interference by setting the rules of the game of business and fair taxation, there could be no broad middle class, maybe a sliver of small business and artisans, but the vast majority of us would be the working poor under the yoke of elites. The economic royalists know this, which gets to the root of why they set out to destroy government's involvement in the economy. After all, in a middle class economy, they may have to give up some of their power and some of the higher end of their wealth may even be redistributed, horrors of horrors, for schools, parks, libraries, and other things that support a healthy middle class society but are not needed by the rich who live in a parallel but separate world from the rest of us. As Jefferson laid out in his 1816 letter to Samuel Kirchhoff, a totally free market where corporations reign supreme, just like the oppressive governments of old, could transform America, quote, until the bulk of the society is reduced to be mere automatons of misery, to have no sensibilities left but for sinning and suffering. Then begins indeed the bella omnium in omnia, which some philosophers observing to be so general in this world, have mistaken it for the natural instead of the abusive state of man. Although this may come as a sudden realization to many, we've really known it all our lives. 
In fact, in the 6,000-year history of the civilized world, a middle class emerging in any nation has been such a rarity as to be largely historically invisible. The United States has had two great periods of what we today call a middle class. The first was from the 1700s to the mid-1800s and was fueled by virtually free land for settlers stolen from the Indians and free labor, slavery in the South and indentured immigrants in the North. The result was, as de Tocqueville pointed out, the most well-educated, politically active, middle-class, non-aristocrats in the world. The second period didn't take hold until after World War II, during my dad's lifetime. Unlike the first, which was fueled by free land and slaves, the second had to be carefully constructed with specific and what some might define as socialist policies put in place during the New Deal which asserted more democratic control over the economy and workplace in order to keep the economic royalists in check. To both stimulate and balance the domestic economy, FDR reinstituted progressive taxation, which gave workers more to spend and gave the rich an incentive to pay their workers better to maintain a stable workplace, since if they took the money themselves, it would just mostly go to taxes, thus stimulating demand for more goods and services. Progressive taxation has a long history. As Jefferson said in a 1785 letter to James Madison, quote, another means of silently lessening the inequality of property is to exempt from taxation all below a certain point and to tax the higher portions of property in geometrical progression as they rise. FDR eventually hiked the top income tax rate paid by the super rich in America to 90%. This had a twofold effect. First, it held income inequality in check and ushered in an era of equal income and growth among all classes. Unlike the Gilded Age, when the economy grew at a blistering pace but the gains were afforded only to the robber barons, the period between 1947 and 1980 saw unparalleled equitable growth. During these 30-plus years, the poorest fifth in America saw a 116% increase in their incomes, the middle fifth 111% increase, top 5% only saw an 85% increase. All income classes shared in the equitable growth. The crash of 2016. Welcome back. Tom Harvard here with you and Lou in Pueblo, Colorado. Hey, Lou, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Great show as usual. I was going to make a comment. I think that we have a, a messaging problem. I know well, we have many messaging problems, but one of them is with white privilege. You know, and if we look at it, I hire a lot of uh, construction workers and I work with people of shall we say, all different classes and skin colors, too. But, but what I hear from white people is consistent. Their standard of living has gone down for 40 years. It's like an escalator coming out of a tank of sewage, and, you know, people are at different points on the escalator, but over the last 40 years, that escalator has slowed, stopped, and now it's reversed. And it, they're actually using the term white privilege is conveying to the people at the bottom that white people are getting special treatment when in fact everybody's getting screwed. We need everybody to realize we're on the same, we're all on the same side. And, you know, it isn't a zero sum game. I'd just like to comment on that. Yeah, yeah, well, we are. You know, the attack on the middle class that Ronald Reagan instituted in 1981 when he began gutting America's unions and changing the tax codes so that rich people could get rich fast and average working people would get screwed. 
has hit everybody, every race, every income level, right across the board. There are more white people in the country than any particular minority, blacks or Hispanics or Asians or whatever. And so, you know, they tend to be the most visible and screaming the loudest. And they were also the principal beneficiaries, particularly after World War II, of the extremely rapid growth of the middle class, because at the time that that happened in the late 1940s, throughout the 1950s and the early 1960s, discrimination wasn't just legal, it was the law of the land. So we lived in an apartheid society, and we've only, we were only, what, 15 years out of that when Reagan came into office? And so he set about trying to stop the changes that, that were tearing down apartheid in the United States as well. And so all of this has created this combustible mix of people right across the board feeling like they're screwed at the same time that you know racial animosities have been stirred up. Ronald Reagan openly campaigning as a racist, kicking off his campaign in Nebosha, or however you say it, the county fair near Philadelphia, Mississippi, where the three civil rights workers, Cheney, Goodman, and Swerner, as I recall, were murdered. And, you know, I think you're right. And I think it all adds up, sometimes in a pretty nasty way. Lou, thanks a lot for the call. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's on your mind today? Well, first of my mind is to wish you and Louise and your children a happy new year and all your listeners. Um, well, thank you. Back at you. I did have great respect for MLK, though I did not quite adhere to most of his tactics. I did have great respect for the man and his intellect. But I want to say this, Tom, you had a caller earlier that said that we're all getting screwed, and that may be true, but if we're all getting screwed, if you are black in this country from the time that we got here, if everyone else is getting screwed, we're getting F. And that's indicative of the coronavirus and how it has disproportionately affected black people. It's reflected in the fact that a family of four uneducated, non-high school graduate, white people make more money per capita as a family than a group of four college-educated black people. So I just wanted to say that. Then lastly... No, I, I in fact, let me add a visual to that if I can. Imagine, you know, how people can sit on each other's shoulders when they're out in the water, you know, standing in a lake and you got people standing and you've got a person standing on the bottom of the, you know, with their feet on the bottom of the lake in water up to their neck. And then there's another person sitting on their shoulders and that person's kind of out of the water and then there's another person (laughs) above them. Well, what's happening is as the people start to sink collectively, the people who were just barely able to breathe, they're now underwater. And that's what's happening in this economic crisis right now to black people in particular and Hispanics as well. And some women also, you know, in the marketplace, but principally black people. It's a very imperfect metaphor. It just came to my head. But anyway, back to you, Kenyatta. And I appreciate that. But, you know, in this country, Americans are constantly talking about dreams. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it. There's the American dream, which few people actually realize. People that are immigrants from South America or Mexico or those types of geographic areas are called dreamers. And then, of course, we have the I have a dream speech. I submit to you and your listeners, Tom, that one of the problems with dreams is if you could use that term problem is that you have to be asleep in order to dream it is the prerequisite to dreaming and we keep hmm. saying i keep hearing that we are we're better than this we're better than this but the reality you have to be awake to experience reality and the reality is that we're seeing right now 30,000 troops 
in our nation's capital. Americans more afraid of each other than any enemy that might be offshore. That is who we are, Tom. And we yep. need to wake up as a country. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. And the sad thing is how far backwards Donald Trump has pushed us all by amplifying racism and, and all this other stuff. It's, it's just so sad. Kenyatta, you always cut right to the chase. Thanks so much for the call. It's great to hear from you. Courtney in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Courtney, thanks for watching us on Facebook Live. What's on your mind today? Hello. Good afternoon, Tom. Just calling to make some points. I just have to Go say I strongly disagree about how we'll never be rid of racism. I believe it's all a psychological perspective. Do you think, Courtney, that there will be a day when there is no more racism? Yes, yes, we will. We will achieve that day because it's a matter of perspective. It's all in the psyche. Our perspectives need to be controlled by us because the thing about tragedy and, and, um, you know, traumatic experiences when it comes to um, racial um, discrimination and racism, what it's supposed to do, the way people got past it back then, they, you know, that was in the midst of racism. That was in the midst of segregation. What choices, um, well, I'm not asking any questions here, but the choices, people had no choices. Their choices were very limited. All they could do was hold fast to what they believe in and live the next day, hug their kids close and you know what I'm saying? And try to keep a future perspective possible in their mind. That's how people kept their sanity. Now, yeah, but Courtney, you still have people in Ireland and Northern Ireland who hate each other and they're both white people. I mean, the I'm different from you mentality and therefore I'm better or worse or therefore I don't like you or not or whatever it may be. I don't see that ever going away. It seems like that's wired into human beings. That's the timelessness of hate. But if people could be disciplined with their mental thinking, which is an aspect of linguistics, and that's the unspoken law of nature, people's perception. When we're talking about the Cold War, we're talking about psyops, psychological operations. It is the unspoken, it's the silence of the mind, how we think, the things we hold close in our minds. That's what's important. So that's yeah. the, um, I'm just willing to make that statement because we, we no, need I gotta, to keep things in I got to say, you're, you're more of an optimist than me, <laughs> frankly. But Courtney, thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's good to hear from you. Alessa in Houston, Texas. I'm guessing I'm mangling your name. A little bit. It's Alessia. Thank you, Tom. Alessia, um, thank you. I'm, I'm calling in deepest gratitude for all that you do, but my point that I wanted to make is temporarily put on hold just because I was listening to the last caller. Let's change that word dream to a vision that does require your eyes to be open. And let's, let's reframe what we're being awoken to now in all of the horror, a lot of more people are having their eyes open. So, you know, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And I would say we have a vision. And mm. that would be my rebuttal too. That's my contribution to that conversation. But the reason I call Tom is I listen to you regularly. And last week you had made a comment about Every 80 years, we go through a pattern like this. I caught the tail end of it. You made the remark at the time that it was of no coincidence. 
that every 80 years we have this kind of pattern. I want to ask for clarity on that. However, I want you to address it in this context, and please allow me to explain a bit. We had a caller today who was very optimistic that we can overcome racism. And my thought at that time was two steps forward, one step back. Can you frame 80 years cycle in that incremental progress of even though we have this pattern, we're moving forward? Oh, yeah. Well, every 80 years when the cycle resets, historically, there's been a huge leap forward. Lewis in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Lewis, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Yeah, so my concern was, I feel like we on the left have been doing just a terrible job at fighting disinformation. And I wanted to know, what can we do about, like, forcing networks like CNN and MSNBC to do real journalism, to, you know, to debunk every single lie that helps create these extremists? The problem, Lewis, is that if we pass a law saying that the news has to actually be news, then that puts the federal government in charge of deciding what is news. And if you'll recall, Donald Trump replaced everybody at the Voice of America, which for you know, 60, 70, 80 years has been broadcasting news to the whole planet, replaced them with Trump toadies who started spewing conspiracy theory BS and singing the praises of Donald Trump and calling that news. And there's no doubt in my mind that if the Trump administration was able to say, you can't broadcast because what you're saying is not true in our opinion, that they would have come after me too. It's sort of like the conversation we had about the domestic terrorism laws. You know, they sound great in principle, and when they're used against the people who are clearly, you know, abusing process and systems and, and a danger to the republic, you know, it seems like a good thing. But, you know, wait until you've got Donald Trump or Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton or Ted Cruz as president, and you will see those laws turned against you, and perhaps in a way that this country can't recover from. I don't mean necessarily like in a legal way. I mean, I mean just like um, like getting them to actually report on certain things. Like for example, when they were talking about Dominion voting machines, like I don't remember one segment on CNN that was dedicated to proving that Dominion voting machines actually worked. You know, didn't have any glitches. They would have done a, a way better right. job of convincing those other people. You know, just by doing that and like. Well, it's hard to prove a negative, but I also, I'm no fan of any voting machines, period. I think that all the votes should be on paper, you know, like we have here in Oregon. But that said, ultimately, that's going to be sorted out in the marketplace. What we're seeing is more and more of these right-wing networks, you know, One American News and Newsmax competing with Fox. I just don't know how long it's, it's going to last. I, I really believe that America is starting to wake up to how dangerous and toxic these guys are. The election in two years is going to tell us an awful lot about that. But I think that's happening. And the groups that are actually providing news are getting good audiences. I mean, CNN's ratings right now are better than they've ever been. Yeah. I do agree with you, though, that fighting the disinformation there is a tendency on the part of many newsrooms to not want to fight disinformation because in order to fight it you have to first present it and they're afraid of amplifying it i think that it's time to set that fear aside (laughs) that cat is out of the bag lewis thanks for the call it's good talking with you 
You can find an absolutely fascinating library of my writings, including my daily rants, over at tomhartman.medium.com. And uh, welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Mark in Philadelphia. Hey, Mark, what's up? Mr. Hartman, how are you, sir? Are you familiar Say with what? Malcolm Nance? Oh, yeah, he's been on this show. I have great respect for Malcolm Nance. Okay, absolutely. I think he's one of the finest, most intelligent individuals uh, on the liberal side. He predicted everything. I've been following him for five years, read a couple books. He predicted everything here about Trump starting a civil war and transnational money laundering into conservative groups, the Heritage Foundation, the NRA. He predicted the NRA would be used as a money laundering operation, which it is, and shut down for that. And he predicted that eventually these uh, right-wing news agencies would be putting convicted criminals on and giving a voice to the Flynn's and the Stones and the Bannons and the Jerry Farwell's and Don Jr. and Giuliani's. And they're actually using convicted criminals from the Trump campaign on right-wing media to justify their crimes. I mean, these guys are already convicted. These guys, these yeah. are indicted, they pled guilty. They needed pardons, so you know they're guilty. And right with media has been embracing them, and they're criminals. And now I understand that Sarah Huckabee is running for governor in Arkansas, and they got her on videotape for seven months lying to the American people, wearing her Trump tattoo on her forehead the way the Charles Manson family wore a Nazi tattoo. And how the heck is she going to well, get elected? Well, not literally, Mark, but do you know what her main sales pitch is for the people of Arkansas? Interestingly, the previous governor, I believe is Asa Hutchinson, signed a piece of legislation that banned any city in Arkansas from being a, quote, sanctuary city. So that's already on the books in Arkansas. Her campaign, though, when she announced her campaign, she said that her major issue was going to be preventing sanctuary cities or ending sanctuary cities in Arkansas. There are no sanctuary cities in Arkansas. ICE can come into any police department, any person who calls the police and says, you know, hey, I'm being raped or, or I was raped or, or my house is being broken into. Um, you know, ICE can now show up if they think that person is not a citizen, uh, is here without documentation. But, you know, so she's even running on a lie. So spot on, spot on, Mark. Thanks a lot for the call. Peter in Milford, Connecticut. Hey, Peter, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm a retired trained security guard. Don't gun and all that stuff, but for years I took it very seriously. And you learn immediately that you keep your eyes open and you're always waiting for the 100-year storm. So the most difficult thing to do is to sit in the chair and stay awake, but you must do that because if you're waiting for the hundred year storm you think it's you define it as there's your distraction and what's going on over here so and it doesn't have to be crash boom whatever uh you could smell some wires burning uh, you know you always see come, people come in today with white shirts or, i don't know most things you keep in your head you're trained over and over again it's very very important that you write a report accurately and clearly because that you use in court. But all those details that I'm remembering, you want to ask me in court, fine. If not, well, there's the report. So anyway, talking about uh, do you arrest all those people or not, 
Obviously, you arrest all of them, and you bring them in interrogation room. No, 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 no. You bring them in, and you know, come in, and whatever the rules are, you got to have somebody with them. And all this movie stuff, that you know, you hear a baby, baby cry. You know, if it's hungry, this, that, and the other. Well, I, I'm good at that, so I'm, I'm the guy that you'd want, maybe, I'm just hypothetically. And so, you your know, point you is that these people need to be interrogated, and I think your hundred-year uh, storm thing is absolutely spot on. It's it, when I, was, when I was learning how to fly, my, my flight instructor said, the life of a pilot is hours and hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. And <laughs> I'm guessing that's true for security boat. guards as well. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect, but it's not interrogation. Yeah. That's, the, that's somebody else's job. Me, they come in, doesn't mean I'm low-key. Come in, you ask them a name, you know the tone of their voice. Okay, just you're not judging, and you're remembering all this stuff. And it could be a 12-year-old, it could be anybody. They could, they're turned. Yeah. The, the, the question no, I got is, it. What what do, what do I represent to them? Right, and we've got to, we've got to find out. You know, how did you get radicalized? Where did you learn this? Who are the ringleaders? Who organized these things? What role did elected officials play in this? I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions. We'll continue this conversation tomorrow and more as we go through the week. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and people around you. And take a walk. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 